3.30 p.m. We'd like to thank all the folks who pledged in the last pledge drive. We've raised over $976,000 thanks to all of you. Stone's Throw is up next here on KPFA. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up. In darkness From the ones Who Walk in light Light them up Boys There's your picture Drop the shadow Out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, yes, and once again, I've done it again, I have here 19 subjects. Oh, I read my my uh, manual here at KPFA, and it said that the first task, you see, is to focus, it says, focus. After 20 years, I don't think that's going to happen. No, I'm going to fragment to the end. First of all, I do want to thank all those of you who sent us uh, your hard-earned cash. I, I'm i not very good at being a salesperson, but um, you all know how grateful we are uh, that you keep us going and that you sustain us and um, help us pay the bills around here. Oh, the bottom line, the bottom line, and the bottomed out mind. Watch it, watch it, yes. Whoopi Goldberg is on television tonight. Um, the show is not what I had hoped, but it is there. Tuesday nights, we got Whoopi Goldberg back. Uh, there's another uh, TV show. If you have cable television and HBO, you might want to check out a show called Born Rich. <laughs> I was disappointed, but I thought, well, something's better than nothing. It's a young man from the um, Vanderbilt Whitney family. He managed to get together a group of young people who are coming into great uh, fortunes and get them to talk. And he got a wide range. He got one guy who was the real jackass that sued him and so forth. All the way to um, Trump. Yes, the Trump daughter. Uh, she... Um, uh, you know, and Angelina Jolie, she looks like, uh, with the lips and so forth. But she did seem extremely calm, and she said she had a thing for real estate. Yes, um, I'm not sure what the show teaches, if that's what you care about, but I, I would be fascinated to know what high school students today uh, feel when they look at these young people uh they do seem to be extremely self-conscious, but I'm not sure they're a good cross-section. Born rich, obviously, they have to be the sort of young people who are willing to, uh, you know, break the silence and talk about money. It is, of course, in the worst taste uh, to talk about money if you are rich. 
uh, I remember my parents who came through the Depression used to laugh about that point of view. They told me that in this country, at least all great fortunes can be traced back to great crimes. The notion of earning millions is obvious, uh, obviously nonsense. Kind of like the notion that people are paid according to their talents. That'll be the day, boys and girls. My mother actually did think it was uncouth to talk a lot about money. Uh, but her point of view came from this notion that business, you know, government business was the worst. Uh, making money, she thought, was uh, uh, pretty vulgar. She accepted the pragmatic need for a decent income, but, you know, only enough to support one's life as an artist. <laughs> yes. Or an anarchist, or even a scholar. Uh, money, she told me, bought leisure, uh, not stuff. In my family, the respectable people were in medicine, and the lighthearted ones were in the arts. Uh, those were the only jobs I knew very much about. Um, oh, actually, I think there were a few clerics, a few Methodist clerics, but we don't talk about them. My mother's sister had a job in advertising in Manhattan, early in the 20th century, but uh, she insisted that it was a creative vocation. Could very well be. At least it was a decent living. I should have tried it myself. My father's income as a doctor maintained the family fairly well. Uh, I had sort of middle-class notions, at least middle-class prejudices as a young girl. I did get a few shocks at Mills College, when I met young women with serious money, I read that terrific book, The Rich and the Super Rich. I had no idea. But actually, Mills College here on the West Coast has uh, a strange reputation for democracy. I got lots of egalitarian ideology there. We had no sororities, and uh, supposedly we existed in a meritocracy, at least in the arts. My best friend, I remember, was... Um, like me, she was broke. Uh, she was the best dancer in her department. I think I was uh, one of the lead actors. So we got lots of self-esteem, even after my father cut me off financially and I had to borrow money to go to school. But um, I guess I, I remember my father reading my diaries and kicking me out. But it, it wasn't so difficult in the 50s. You know, you, you scrounged up the money somehow. Uh, it's not like it is today. My own children have not been able to ignore money the way I did. Uh, uh, it's not enough, not enough these days. Um, my oldest son was exactly 20 the year Reagan came to power. And, uh, I think, I, I look at it now and I, I think, why didn't it occur to me? that there would come a day when, you know, I couldn't make the rent. It just never crossed my mind, you know, that subsistence wouldn't be easy enough. Um, it wasn't a question of getting a job. Anybody could get a job. The question was whether or not you wanted to go and work for somebody else. Uh, no wonder my older son became an economics major. Uh, he knows the mythos of the age. I, I think my favorite indicator is television. I found something on television this week that marks a trend. Of course, uh, it's nonsense. It's the television show Sex and the City. 
it is such a fantastic fantasy show that even I've come to like it. But one of the characters, Miranda, is a lawyer, and the writers have allowed her to become a single mom. You know, so she can't just be a um, uh, happily promiscuous New Yorker. And there's no way they can keep reality out of this romp. Um, most of it, you know, all of the characters just roll around in romantic narcissism and uh, buy expensive shoes. But Miranda does come up against life. And uh, this week... She goes to her associates, the other lawyers, and, well, the boss. And she says, well, she's having some difficulty. It isn't working and her priorities and so forth. And she's going to have to limit her hours. And she said, well, she wants to cut back to 50 hours a week. Well, okay, 55. And a little bell rang in my head, and I thought, uh, oh, dear. One of the uh, apprentices was helping me here this afternoon and he said they're trying to increase their demographics yes they want a wider audience <laughs> it's so sad i thought that those party girls could go on screwing around until they became golden girls you know never having to go through uh reality motherhood and any of the rest of it um sex in the city is uh quite an institution i i noticed uh, the other night what was it? The main character, Carrie Bradshaw, she's supposed to write a sex column in a paper in New York. That's her character. And um, her boyfriend is a serious writer. He's written a novel. And in the novel, one of the characters uses a scrunchie on her hair. And she informs him that the character is uh, incorrectly drawn, that no New Yorker, no woman in Manhattan would wear a scrunchie. And she proves this to him by speaking to a woman... Um, in a public place, who's wearing a scrunchie, and sure enough, the woman is a tourist. And this, of course, is cause for um, a breach in the relationship. I just love, I just love our age, the notion that these niddling, narcissistic, small differences actually matter. I, I guess, what is it? We all need conflict in our lives, and... If we don't have it, you know, if we're not in Baghdad, well, we just create all these uh, problems for ourselves. Never mind. Serious things. Today, I wanted to talk about uh, a book called Women on War. But first, because it's a time-dated uh, goodie here, I have a profile of Toni Morrison. I want to tell you about it quick because you might still be able to get it on the newsstand Um Although I think, I think I've got another new one. It's the October 27th, 2003 New Yorker. That's 27 October 2003 New Yorker profile. Hilton Alls has profiled Toni Morrison ghosts in the house. And especially if you're a school teacher or, uh, you know, if Toni Morrison is, uh, an icon for me, of course, she's the mother of us all. And there's a wonderful picture of her black and, in black and white with her dreadlocks now. And I looked at it and I went in my files and I found uh, a pretty picture of Tony in a pink blouse uh, back in the old days, you know, um, time or something. And, and uh, it's a, uh, uh, what I would call a, it's, it's not, 
it's not unattractive, but it's it's sweet. You know, they made her look sweet in her big pink blouse. And here, of course, she looks like a Stonehenge. She looks like a very weighty Nobel laureate, which is, of course, what she is. I just want to read you a couple little little snippets of this profile. Hilton Alls, of course, uh, recognizes that Toni Morrison has fostered a generation of black writers. That she's now what I guess I would call the significant elder uh, on the literary scene. Um, let's see how much I have time to tell you here. Let's uh, jump to the end here. Uh, Hilton Alls writes, The racial climate in the mid-70s made it especially hard for Toni Morrison to promote certain books. She was by... Uh, she was at this time a uh, an editor at Random House. She was not a black editor, but the black editor, as a friend of hers said. Uh, but books um, uh, that might be taken as too radical were hard to promote. So Morrison remembered that the marketing department balked when she wanted to have a publication party in a club on 125th Street. <laughs> there is a subject, yes, for... Sex in the City, yes. No one from Random House came. Got that? The publishers at Random House were afraid to go to a club on 125th Street back in the 70s. It was rumored that someone in management had cautioned the staff against the danger. Uh, except, of course, the publicist and her assistant who said it was the best party they'd ever been to. A couple of news crews showed up, however, and the party was on the... Evening News, giving the book hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of free publicity by Morrison's reckoning. Um, similarly, Toni Morrison said when she brought out Muhammad Ali's autobiography, The Greatest, in 1976, all the department stores that were approached about hosting the book, signing, yes, uh, all these... Um, Department stores backed out because they feared riots and looting. <laughs> when E.J. Corvettes, the now defunct department store, agreed to host a signing, Tony Morrison brought in members of the Nation of Islam. They came with their families as peacekeepers. She also installed a white friend, a woman who worked in the sales department, to guard Muhammad Ali. You stand right next to Ali, she said, and when people come up and punch him, hey, champ, you stop them, because he's not going to say it, ever, that it hurts when you get a thousand little taps. And when you think Ali is tired, give him a baby to play with, because he likes babies. Two thousand people came to E.J. Corvettes on a rainy night, with the brothers of the Nation of Islam milling around in the crowd. And everything was serene and orderly. Throughout the 70s, Morrison worked as a teacher at Yale. Uh, oh, gosh, there's a list here of all of the places where she taught. Uh, Rutgers, uh, SUNY, Albany. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jason Epstein recalls Random House paid about 10 cents. So Toni Morrison took on teaching jobs. In a 1998 interview, she said, when I wanted a raise in my employment world, they would give me a little woman's raise. And I would say, no, this is really low. And they would say, but, and I would say, no, you don't understand. 
You're the head of the household. You know what you want. That's what I want. I want that. I'm on serious business now. This is not a girl playing. This is not a wife playing. This is serious business. I'm the head of a household, and I must work to pay for my children. Uh, footnote, Tony Morrison has two grown sons. They have uh, children of their own now. Um, there's a lot of her background in this uh, uh, profile. It's a long, long, detailed profile, and I highly recommend it. It's in the New Yorker of 27 October. Um, most people uh, were startled, or I was, when I first read The Bluest Eye, her first novel, uh, and it did make the literary establishment take notice. Hilton Alls goes on to say, in Sula, which was published three years after The Bluest Eye, Morrison's little colored girls grew up, and they occupied a more completely rendered world. Uh, Bluest Eye was divided by seasons. Sula was divided into years. It stretched from 1919 to 1965. Again, the story was set in a small Ohio town in a neighborhood called The Bottom. That's a joke, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sula May Peace, Toni Morrison's heroine, is the progeny of an eccentric household run by formidable women. She leaves the bottom in order to reinvent herself. Morrison does not relay what Sula does when she ventures into the world, but her return is catastrophic. The first sign of impending disaster is a plague of robins. Uh, and she, Hilton Alls goes on to detail uh, the confrontation of Sula with her grandmother, Eva, and... Uh, this is such fascinating stuff. I remember back in the 70s, late 70s, when I was teaching Sula, uh, I found it to be the most perfectly constructed novel. Uh, after Sula, Toni Morrison let herself go, and uh, the novels turned into pure poetry. I think she was secure, you know, once... <laughs> As Richard Wright and James Baldwin both said, you had to prove, you know, you could write a... A proper novel, you know, with beginnings, middles, and ends. Uh, um, Bob Gottlieb says here, this is Hilton Hall's article, Bob Gottlieb told me that he was always inserting commas into Toni Morrison's sentences, and she was always taking them out. Uh-huh. Naturally. Um, in describing her style, Toni Morrison said, I thought, well... I'm going to drop G's, where the black people drop G's. Uh, and the white people on the same street in the same part of the state don't. But there was a distinction in the language, and it wasn't in the spelling. It was something else. Morrison went on, maybe it is because African languages are so tonal. So that with the little shifts in pronunciation, the little shifts in placement, something else happens. And she goes on to talk about this magic. Uh, I would always advise people to read Toni Morrison aloud. And you get the cadences. Here she is quoted again. Uh, Morrison says, I was just determined to take the language that for me was so powerfully metaphoric economical, lunatic, and intelligent at the same time. Just these short sentences or these developments of ideas 
that was the language of my family and neighbors and so on, and not make it exotic or comic or slumming. Zora Neale Hurston, the 1930s novelist and folklorist, was an example, Morrison said, of a black writer who treated dialogue as a transcript to show white people how it really was in the Florida swamps. Morrison's aim was different. Street language, she writes, street language is lyrical. Plus, it has this blend of the standard English and the sermonic, as well as the colloquial, you know. That is what I wanted to polish and show and make it a literary vehicle. Um... Tony Morrison has succeeded in this to the point of irritating some readers. James Woods, in a review of her novel Paradise, he titled the review The Color Purple. Ah, goodness. He wrote, Morrison is so besotted with making poetry, with the lyrical dying of every moment that she cannot grant characters their own words. She seems to view her people as mere spokes of style, who exist to keep her lyricism in motion. Yay, yay, unquote. I love it. Uh, it's possibly even true. I think of Beloved as this monumental, monumental poem. That is the novel which won her, her Nobel laureate. Um, Morrison situates herself inside the black world. Uh, she undermines the myth of black cohesiveness. This is what Hilton Alls believes. He goes on to, to write, With whiteness off stage, or certainly right of center, she showed black people fighting with each other, murdering, raping, breaking up marriages, burning down houses. She also showed nurturing fathers who abide and the matriarchs who love them. Morrison reveled in the complications, quote, I didn't want it to be a teaching tool for white people. I wanted it to be true, not from outside a culture as a writer looking back at it, she said. I wanted it to come from inside the culture and speak to people inside the culture. It was about a refusal to pander or distort or gain political points I wanted to reveal and raise questions. She is still raising questions. Bill Cozy, the deceased patriarch in her most recent novel, Love, is both beneficent and evil, a guardian and a predator. Now, doing so, Toni Morrison broke ranks, particularly with black male writers such as Larry Neal and Amiri Baraka, who were taking an increasingly militant stance against racism. Their attitude descended from the realistic portraits of black resistance in the novels of Richard Wright, James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, who, Toni Morrison believed, were writing for a white audience. Morrison said, The title of Ralph Ellison's book was Invisible Man. Now, the question for me was, Invisible to who? Not to me. Morrison refused to present an ideal or speak in unison, even if it meant she was perceived as a traitor. There is that sense of firm loyalty for black people, she said. 
the question is always, is this going to be useful for the race? One black woman told Toni Morrison after reading uh, The Bluest Eye, I really liked that book, but I was frustrated and angry because I didn't want you to expose us in our lives. Morrison replied, well, how can I reach you if I don't expose it to the world? Others, myself included, writes Hilton Alls, accused her of perpetuating rather than dismantling the myth of the indomitable black woman long-suffering and oversexed. In a book about real and fictional black women, I wrote that the obsessive man-love of Hannah, Sula's mother, was a stereotype. At the time, I didn't see that Morrison's decision to burn her to death was a moral condemnation, not a melodrama. Morrison is used to being challenged. She isn't afraid to confront her critics. She said to me a few years ago, I didn't like what you wrote. I was caught off guard, but she steered the conversation to another topic. Hilton Olds goes on to say that the reviews of Sula, like those of The Bluest Eye, were mixed. Writing in The Nation, the critic Jerry H. Bryant came closest to identifying the confusion. Most of us have been conditioned to expect something else in black characters, especially black female characters. Guiltless victims of brutal white men yearning for a respectable life of middle-class security. Whores driven to their profession by impossible conditions. Housekeepers exhausted by their work for lazy white women. We do not expect to see a fierceness bordering on the demonic. <laughs> I love it. End of quote. Yes. I, I remember when I first read Sula, I thought of a marvelous book by Gertrude Stein called Melantha, uh, The Melancholy Black Flower. It was written 80 years before Sula. And they make a fascinating comparison. I like to teach those two books back to back or face to face. Uh, Gertrude Stein's Melantha or Each One As She May and Sula, both women, uh, individuate to the point of no return. They become outsiders and of course their society, uh, destroys them or they destroy themselves in a way. Um, Melantha, is in search of, um, oh, not just sexual fulfillment, but uh, she's after the ineffable. And Sula, too, uh, Sula says, I've got my mind. Anyway, um, Bob Gottlieb advised Toni Morrison to move on after she wrote Sula. Uh, Okay, I told her, that's perfect. As perfect as a sonnet, he recalled. You've done that. You don't have to do that again. Now you're free to open up more. So she followed his advice with Song of Solomon, a sprawling epic about a prosperous but tortured black family. It drew comparisons to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude. Uh, she turned her attention to history taking on in the years to come slavery, reconstruction, the Great Migration, the Harlem Renaissance. Writing began to occupy uh, more of her time and goes on to talk about this uh, this uh, 
black woman thing, yes. No man, no credit, and trying to buy a house. <laughs> anyway. Oh, yes. Imagine Toni Morrison worried about the woman thing, trying to buy a house. She finally resigned from Random House, and uh, after publishing Tar Baby, she decided, well, her uh, friends told her she could depend on her writing to support her. She could write write her on the tax returns. Uh, and golly, I won't have time today to read Women on War. I want to tell you about this international anthology. Uh, Daniela G-I-O-S-E-F-F-I International Anthology of Writings from Antiquity to the Present Women on War. Save it for next Tuesday. Uh, Check your local bookstore, your local magazine rack, for the October 27th profile of Toni Morrison, the mother of us all, um, her life in literature. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.10. I want to thank my kind engineer who found me a CD today. God bless him. Yes, that's William... William Walker. Thank you, William. Till next time, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. La Peña's fourth annual Echo and Califas Festival features the best in California Chicano Latino artists, including Aya de Leon, Fruitvale Project, Mark Bamuti Joseph, Universes from New York, Tocadiscos from Mexico, La Plebe, Slow Rider, Aslan Underground, and many more. November 1st to the 21st. For the schedule, please call La Peña at 510-849-2568 or visit lapena.org. A benefit for La Peña, a nonprofit wheelchair.